You're listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM, a show that connects MIT to the world. I'm your host, Sanaya Samson-Hill. MIT India and MIT Africa were thrilled to team up to host a conversation with MIT alumni, students, and faculty on difficult but necessary topics around diaspora, race, inclusion, and identity. Today, we are going to share parts of that conversation. The event featured M.G. Vasanji, class of 1974, a Kenyan-born, Tanzanian-raised South Asian who currently lives in Canada. Dr. Vasanji is a prize-winning novelist, and while at MIT, he co-founded the MIT African Students Association. The panel also included MIT history professor Kenda Mutongi, author of Matatu, a history of popular transportation in Nairobi, the panel discussion was moderated by MIT history professor Sana Ayar, author of Indians in Kenya, The Politics of Diaspora. Professor Mutongi and Dr. Vasanji illustrated the unique experiences of a generation of Africans who came of age in a period of decolonization, Africanization, and nation building. There's a popular Swahili proverb uh, that those of you who have spent any time in East Africa might be familiar with. Baniani Mbaya Kiatu Chake Daba. And this literally translates um, into the Baniya or the Hindu trading caste is bad, but his shoes are medicine. And this proverb really sums up a kind of dependency of East Africans on an untrustworthy community. Um, and this specter of the Indian as a trader who's unwanted has been the main scholarly and popular framework into which South Asians of East Africa have been fit in. But this proverb really deploys two tropes that I think are important for me to flag at the beginning of our conversation. One, not all South Asians in East Africa were or are traders. And second, not all were or are Hindu. In fact, there is no singular South Asian diasporic community in East Africa. There's a dizzying array of registers to which South Asians of East Africa identify themselves along religious, sectarian, linguistic, cultural and generational as well as class-based lines. Now the merchants, you know, there had been merchants from Western India who had been trading along the Swahili coast for centuries before the arrival of the British in the Indian Ocean in the um, late 19th century. And the scale and scope of this migration expanded as both India and East Africa came under British colonial rule. Migrants came from the region of Punjab in present day India and Pakistan, Gujarat and Goa, there were Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs who migrated um, and settled along the railway line that was built from um, Mombasa inland um, and settled sort of, you know, they built uh, the railway lines and settled um, along this line as laborers, traders, professionals, doctors, lawyers, um, and teachers, as well as their families. Um, now, this diasporic community maintained, uh, for the most part, ties with its homeland in India uh, by moving back and forth. Um, and also, the, the kind of business and social life that they set up in East Africa was endogamous. It was based on kinship ties, so they tended to uh, have business partnerships only amongst each other and married amongst each other. And although they were subject to discrimination by the colonial state, they were for the most part better off, um, you know, better educated, uh, richer, had better employment opportunities than the majority of their African compatriots. Um, and by the 1930s, they had more or less a complete monopoly over retail, small trade um, across East Africa. 
There were about 300,000 South Asians who lived and in East Africa and called East Africa their home in the 1960s. And with independence in Tanzania, um, Kenya, and Uganda came a politics of indigeneity, a slogan, Africa for Africans, that really summed up the kind of nationalism um, that sort of emerges, emerged in East Africa in the 1960s. And in this, uh, Indians were seen as something of a colonial hangover. Um, the South Asians were considered as not really belonging to South Asia. They had remained aloof, uh, sorry, not belonging to East Africa. They had remained sort of aloof from social, cultural life in East Africa. And Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda saw a series of Africanization policies led by the post-colonial states that ranged from the nationalization of businesses to outright expulsion um, as sort of, you know, there was this increasing sort of politics of race and nationalism uh, in the political uh, arena. And this politics of race and nation also appeared in literature. The first English uh, language novel written by an East African African uh, was published in 1962 by uh, you know, Ngugi Wat who will be familiar to many of you. Um, you know, his novel was called Weep Not, Weep Not Child. And this novel contained a scathing critique of the Indian shopkeeper, the trader as unwanted in Kenya. The first English language novel written by a South Asian uh, in East Africa was uh, called The Day After Tomorrow that was published in 1971 by Bahadur Tejani. Um, and in this, Tejani really talked about the need for South Asians to completely assimilate in East Africa in a new civilization in a new um, country. And there's been subsequently lots of scholarship on South Asians in East Africa that either sort of talks about the friction between South Asians and Africans or solidarity between um, uh, South Asians and Africans. And it's really between these two extremes that lay, lay everyday life and everyday entanglements that were less dramatic, more mundane, less of a spectacle. And in fact, even Ngugi Wathiyango dedicated Weep Not Child to his Indian classmate. Um, you know, if we look at the sort of front matter, it's actually dedicated to an Indian classmate, which is really suggestive of an intimacy of solidarity and friction being two sides of the same story, right? And that there is no one single narrative of South Asians in East Africa. And so I'm delighted to have with us today two brilliant storytellers with, uh, uh, at this, uh, on the panel, um, historian and my dear friend and colleague, Professor Kenda Mutungi, and uh, the novelist, uh, Dr. Vasanji, um, who both belong to a generation of East Africans who came of age in this period of decolonization, Africanization, and nation building. And so today's webinar is not going to be full of scholarly jargon and debates about the big issues of friction, solidarity, but in fact are going to be a more personal and intimate entry point um, into trying to understand the, the, you know, the South Asians of East Africa. And so Kenda, perhaps we could start with you. And I was wondering if you could share with us, um, you know, your encounters or experiences and memories uh, of growing up in Western Kenya and your encounters in particular with uh, the Asian or Indian as they were called variously um, community members in uh, Kenya. Um, thank you very much, uh, Sana, for that introduction. Um, so I, I, I grew up in Western Kenya, rural Western Kenya, uh, a village uh, about 60 miles uh, northwest of Kisumu. Uh, my village had about 6,000 people. 
uh, we were mostly peasants, uh, uh, and it was a very, very densely populated region of, of, of Western Kenya. Uh, about a couple of miles from my village, or at least where I grew up, there, were, uh, there was an Indian shopping center uh, that had about six Indian families. Most of them had about six to eight, eight children. And uh, I was told, of course, that uh, when I was growing up, in, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. uh, but I was told that uh, before that there was there were actually a big bigger group of Indian merchants who had actually made more money and moved to the to the to Kisumu to to make bigger businesses. Uh, anyway, uh, these children um, um, of the Indian um, families had a small primary school next to this. Uh, shopping center and um, they played with each other. They never played with the African kids. Uh, we called everybody Indian, whether they were Pakistani or Bangladeshi or, you know, we did know the difference. Um, the Indians never really visited our, our villages. Uh, they distanced themselves often. And uh, I would go to the Indian store often to buy fabric. Uh, mm -hmm. This was the only place you could buy fabric uh, in, in the area uh, to make uh, my uniform. But mostly uh, the information we had about Indians uh, were through stereotypes, were about stereotypes, hearsay, suspicion, and mostly actually ignorance because we didn't know them uh, well at all. Uh, in many cases, I think we felt badly for them, uh, mm. but we also, I think we envied them because they were rich, really richer than us, mm. uh, uh, at least by our standards. I think we felt badly for them because again, this was kind of you know me listening in and conversation about older women talking about the, the Indian wives uh, who never moved, you know, they never really walked around. They just, they were mostly confined to their backyards. Uh, a lot of people felt that the Indians felt badly for the Indians because they had no land. Uh, and they thought that the Indians were weak, you know, they were weak, uh, they, they were not as strong as, as peasant farmers. Um, they also felt badly for them too because they didn't eat meat. <laughs> which we all really desired. Mm -hmm. uh, but lastly, the most, the most important thing was when I, people would talk about Indians cremating dead mm -hmm. bodies. And they, you know, for Africans, you know, for those of you who've been around African uh, funerals, and I mean, funerals are really, really, really important. And so that was just, for, for me, most, most of my people, we felt that the Indians were heartless. But there was also envy, of course, because they had these thriving businesses and uh, they were really hardworking. You know, they had quite a bit of money. Uh, and people in my village would talk amongst themselves and say how we Africans were not good shopkeepers. Uh, mm -hmm. Every time we, you know, someone opened up a shop, it went under because people gave, uh, gave away uh, goods on credit, while the Indians never, never, never did give out anything on credit. Of course, Indians thought we were lazy. That's why our shops were failing. But that is kind of, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that, that, that's just kind of what was going on then. Um, now, I moved to high school or secondary school, again, uh, which was a government boarding school uh, in Western Kenya. and. Um, I, it was then that I realized actually that not all Indians are well-to-do. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And then there were just as many poor Indians, uh, especially in India, uh, than, mm. than what we saw. And, and that India in some ways was just as poor as Kenya. Uh, one of the set books we read for, um, for school was a book called So Many Hungers by mm -hmm. Babani Bhattacharya. Uh, it was a book about farming and uh, the starvation in Bengal in 1942 and 1943. And when I went back to the village and I told people about this, that, the, you know, that people in India were really quite poor, people didn't really, really believe, believe me. Uh, so just another small anecdote. When I was planning to come to America, um, I went, you know, I obviously went to, to get my passport and so on. And when I went to the airport, there was a line for Kenyans and a line for the other, you know, at the airport. And in my line, there were so many Indians. And so I was like, how come they're in, in my line? Because I thought Indians are supposed to be from India and they have Indian passports. It turns out that all of them had Kenyan passports. And so that was really, really pretty shocking for me, I have to say, uh, I'll never forget that. Anyway, so moving on to graduate school, I'm almost done. Uh, moving on to graduate school, of course, I read a lot about, about Indians participating in politics, but really there was no full, uh, full length book on Indians in Kenya. There were little bits and pieces here and there. Uh, I picked up Ghani Sak and the Book mm -hmm. of Secrets at a bookstore when I was in graduate school in Charlottesville, but I never really read it. Uh, but when I picked up in the in-between world of Vikram Rao, this was in, I believe, 2005, mm -hmm. uh, when I started my job at Williams, I loved it. I was blown away. I was, the history, the language, the interactions just really, really blew me away. And then of course, uh, that's, I learned more about the kind of Indian uh, African interaction. And then of course, uh, my friend Sana came along and wrote her beautiful, excellent, detailed study of Indians in Kenya. And that has really kind of, kind of wrapped it up for me uh, about the story of Indian. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad for that. Thank you so much, Genda. I mean, you know, it's really these stories that show how there is no one framework within which we can fit these uh, experiences. There's, you know, on the one hand, there's this shadowy presence of the Asians in your early childhood. Um, then there's sort of the encounter with India um, and, you know, reorienting our idea of who, you know, what constitutes South Asia and South Asian. So that's really wonderful. And we will come back to some of these themes. Yeah. But I wanted to bring Dr. Basanji in um, at this point and ask him uh, as an Asian, and I know that this is a uh, identity that is sort of being imposed <laughs> in, in this question. But as an Asian growing up in East Africa, you know, you'd spend time in both Kenya and Tanzania and the heady days of decolonization, nationalization, um, Africanization. What were your memories growing up? Uh, what sorts of ways did sort of the, you know, the, the politics of the world around you have an impact in a much more intimate manner um, in your childhood? First, uh, <clears throat> I should say that, uh, you know, the, the summary you gave was a vast generalization. Uh, it was uh, a Kenya point of view. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the Indians or Asians who went to Kenya were in many different categories. Mm -hmm. There were those who went to Mombasa and Malindi, and they've been there for centuries. Then there were some of them, like my great-grandfather, who went along the caravan route. So before the mm -hmm. railway line, there mm -hmm. was the caravan route, which went from Mombasa to Kampala and beyond into the Congo. Mm -hmm. and so my great-grandfather had a shop in one of these towns called Kibwezi. 
Yes. And they, there was no such thing as, you know. And then after the Second World War, after the partition of India, you had these other Indians who came to Kenya. Mm-hmm. Mostly, I think, I could be wrong, Punjabis, and they were professionals. Mm-hmm. So they, of course, had contact with India. They knew India, they were more educated. But those of us who were on the coast, Zanzibar, mm-hmm. Mombasa, Malindi, Lamu, Dar es Salaam, we had no connection with India. We knew we were Asians. We had some rituals, uh, languages, which of course had also evolved. Our language was Kachi and Gujarati, but it had changed. It was partly archaic because you know all migrants you know keep an archaic form of the mother tongue. And then it was inflected with the Swahili. What yes. food that becomes Swahili? You know, we had learned to cook with coconut. Only later I learned that, you know, in Kerala they cook similar food, you know, but still it was coastal food. And the Africans themselves then adopted Indian foods. I read a recent, I looked at a recent uh, cookbook uh, published in Kenya, which said biryani is an African food. I said, <laughs> and, and many Kenyans, uh, Kenyan Africans believe chapati is, of course, invented in Nairobi. Mm-hmm. You have uh, this kind of uh, misunderstanding and uh, Mm -hmm. the history that's written about Asians in East Africa has been written by Kenyans, you know, Mm -hmm. the Guy brothers and others, you know, and it's it's a Punjabi history and a lot of uh, Mm -hmm. Indians uh, from Punjab believe that all the Asians went to East Africa to build the railway, but that's not true. Mm -hmm. In fact, the person who brought these Punjabis to build the railway was himself a Gujarati from a trading community. So there are lots of these details. And when I grew up, of course, I thought very fondly of Nairobi because it was more advanced, you know, but I was only four when I, <laughs> four and a half when I left. You know, in Nairobi, we had, uh, you know, we wore, we wore shoes at home and, you know, we had a uh, semi-detached bungalow and, uh, and my father had a car. But when we went to Dar es Salaam, after my father died, you know, we basically played in the mud, you know, and, uh, and uh, we learned Swahili and nobody I knew or met in Tanzania ever thought mm-hmm. of going to India. They never went to India. Mm-hmm. Those who worked for the colonial government in the customs department or the police, they were entitled to what is called home leave. So for the colonial government, home meant India. So these people who had never been to India, their parents mm-hmm. had never been to India, but they got a chance to India, they go to India. So they went to India mm-hmm. and they came back and brought the shows and you know the little Taj Mahals and so on. But uh, we never thought of India as home. But we spoke the language, we cooked the food, we were called Asians. And uh, especially my generation, we were, you know, wherever I went, after I left uh, Tanzania, I, called, I said, I'm a Tanzanian, I'm a proud Tanzanian. Mm-hmm. And sometimes at MIT, for example, when I went, these Indian students would come and they would say, are you from India? I said, what do you mean? No, I'm from Tanzania. <laughs> that identity for Tanzanians was very strong and it had mm-hmm. been reinforced by Nyerere mm-hmm. by growing up. In a, in a place where, you know, we spoke Swahili better than the guys in Nairobi did. And we were proud of that. And I'm sure in Kisumu, you spoke very bad Swahili. You know, I remember Africans in Kenya saying, mm-hmm. we used to laugh. Right? <laughs> it was only when Moi came that he imposed Swahili yeah. on Kenyan students. And then when I go to Nairobi now, they speak fluent Swahili, but it's a different mm-hmm. Swahili from the Tanzanian and coastal Swahili. So you can tell when I go to Nairobi, you know, I speak Swahili, they say I'm Tanzania. <laughs> <laughs> so that nuance is, is forgotten by the Kenyans who write about it, mm-hmm. the Kenyan Asians. Mm-hmm. And another thing, you know, when Gugi wrote about, wrote about and others wrote about the Banyanis, Banyani could apply also to other Indians. You know? 
But uh, because all the Gujaratis were from the Banya caste, you know, whether they were mm -hmm. Muslims or Hindus or Ismailis or Ishnashis, whatever. And uh, so he, he, you know, the, it was very, you would say, the thing to do to put down the, the Banyani. Mm -hmm. But then, I think about 10 or 15 years ago, Gugi wrote an article in which he backtracked, you know, he in fact praised the, what the Indians had mm -hmm. done in Kenya, but as I said, somewhere, it was a bit too late. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was too late. I mean, they should have realized that, you know, my, my mother worked from eight in the morning to 10 at night, and you know, she was not an exploiter. Mm -hmm. And yet the politicians would call the Indians the Jews of Africa. <laughs> you know, this really brings me to, you know, the next set of questions I had before we bring our students in. And, you know, that was about a very general question of where do South Asians of East Africa belong and what kinds of inclusions and exclusions take place. You know, in 2017, um, the Kenyan constitution gave official recognition to the Asians of Kenya as the 44th tribe in a really interesting sort of move where this, you know, the, this tribal sort of constitutional right had been meant to preserve, um, you know, the land and rights of communities that had been historically uh, deprived of them, uh, which wasn't sort of the case. There were other kinds of insecurities that South Asians faced, but for the, you know, Asians there, you know, this was a real sort of assertion of belonging uh, as sort of sons of the soil. And the more, Dr. Basanji, that you were saying of people who have been there for generations, whose stories didn't necessarily begin or end with the colonial um, uh, sort of British story. So, you know, what kinds of inclusions and exclusions have you experienced in the storytelling that you do? Um, you know, Kenda in African studies and in your own um, ethnographic fieldwork. And for Dr. Basanji, you know, the protagonists of most of your novels, um, you know, and I will say that the in-between world of Vikram Lal was one of my favorites as well. Um, you know, they go back to their homeland, their East African homeland, um, without really erasing their communitarian identity at all. And in fact, sort of your books do position them in between, um, which isn't to say that they belong nowhere, but in a way sort of that they belong everywhere. And Gaurav Desai sort of has written about your work to say that your work really looks at the ethics of ethnicity, that insists on sharing stories across uh, communities. So I wondered if you could both speak a little bit to, um, you know, this question of South Asian belonging in your own work. And uh, Kenda, maybe we could start with you. I think that uh, my, my work has focused mostly on the last, at least my last book has been on businesses in, in Nairobi. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I asked the people I was interviewing with I was interviewing who are, who are concerned with the Matatu industry uh, was why Indians had not penetrated this industry. Uh, mm -hmm. In many ways, the one industry in Kenya that you don't have a lot of South Asians, I mean, in fact, hardly any. And, uh, and people would say to me, oh, no, 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 there's no way that we could let Indians into this, this industry. Mm -hmm. It's Kenyan, it's uniquely Kenyan, and there's no way Indians could survive. Uh, 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 as Matatu honors and so on. But it actually turns out that, that a lot of, uh, a, a number of Indians do own Matatus, but they employ Africans or they, you know, they, they have Africans speak for them. So it, it, it doesn't look like they are mm. actually in, in, in the business. So that was really interesting to me in that there's still this kind of element of exclusion going on in the business. And, 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 and it's also, Indians feel excluded, but they also exclude, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it goes both ways. Um, I think the story of the Indians as, as, as the um, 
42nd uh, Kenyan uh, tribe is really an interesting one and a promising one. And I think it's one that is probably going to get us to one of the places that Dr. Vasanji is talking about where uh, the communities in these Indian communities or South Asian communities really feel like they are a part of things, uh, mm -hmm. part of the kind of larger Kenyan community. I think uh, part of the exclusion came during the euphoria of independence, you know, where you know, a lot of things were going on. So, but you know, when you're in the thick of it, you, you feel it as resentment or oppression or whatever. But in the long run, you realize you know, it had to pass. You know? And I think mostly it passed. Interestingly, the place where I feel most excluded is uh, Kenya. Because there's a lot of colonial resentment left over. There was a British, the English, uh, who had the money and the power, and the Indians were in between mm -hmm. uh, at different stages. Some were in shops, and some, of course, were in the police and the customs and so on. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. in Kenya, if I sp speak Swahili, you know, I, I, you know, sometimes I sense a resentment because mm -hmm. they think, in colonial terms, as if I don't know English. <laughs> Whereas in Tanzania, it's the reverse. If you speak English, mm -hmm. a, <laughs> he just pretends, you know, he's... So when I speak Swahili in Tanzania, I'm just one of them. Because Swahili is not that just is spoken. So it's not spoken. You speak it in a certain way. You know, there's a certain accent. Mm -hmm. So even after so many years, you know, I, I know the new words have emerged and new things have happened. But as soon as I land at the airport, I start speaking Swahili. And mm -hmm. they, I immediately feel part of it. And nobody knows where I come from. So mm -hmm. a few years ago, I went on a tour. Because you know, when you're young, you hear about all the little towns where our community lived. So I thought I would like to go and see those places because they just existed in the imagination. So I took a friend from Nairobi and we went by bus to you know, several places. And uh, wherever pe people ask me, where do you come from? I said, I come from Uhuru Street, Dar es Salaam. They said, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Nobody said, you know, you talk like a foreigner. You are a foreigner, not mm -hmm. at all. And I was sitting in a bus like everybody else. And you know, it was mm -hmm. just like that. And another small point is that people don't realize that when you talk of Asians, they were also racist, but they were more communalists. So for us, a different community interacting or intermarrying with them meant losing your faith, which was the most important thing for any Asian community. So that is often not realized. It is not race necessarily, but also community. So you don't want to go outside the community. Okay. But as soon as um, you know, we modernized, like in Toronto or whatever, you know, in our community, there's 50% intermarriage. You know, 50% of the young kids, they intermarry. Really, that was very superficial. But it was there. In Kenya, it was imposed because the British had more or less an apartheid system. No, you know, that's really interesting. And when you said, you know, when you assert your identity as Tanzanian first, you know, that really brings me to um, an event that is, you know, that I want to talk about that is close to the MIT community. And, um, you know, some of you listening in might not know this, uh, but uh, the South, there's a, we're doing a project on the history of South Asia and South Asians at MIT. And in the course of that, some of our students, current students, uh, uh, have been interviewing alumni, including Dr. Vasanji. Um, and, you know, Dr. Vasanji is a public person. He's an award-winning novelist. Uh, you know, we've read his books, some of which feel um, autobiographical in, in many moments. But what we didn't know and what our students discovered through the art of oral history and storytelling was that Dr. Vasanji, in fact, was one of the founding members of the African Students Association at MIT. Um, in, you know, he was part of the class of 1974. And, you know, this occurred at a moment in the 1970s when there was, as Dr. Vasanji and uh, Kenda sort of indicated and alluded to, there were exclusions that were happening in Easter, you know, in Uganda, in Tanzania, in um, Kenya. 
But it's at that moment that you arrive here in the North American context at MIT, encounter um, students from India, Pakistan, uh, Sri Lanka, but in fact, as a Tanzanian, um, you know, join and affiliate with uh, the African Students Association. So I wondered if you could share with us a little bit more about your motivation to starting this uh, student life at MIT and by reminiscing a little bit about the African Students Association that you helped found. Well, I had, uh, when I was at MIT, I had a, a close group of uh, African friends, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, there were two from Ghana, and these undergraduates, my class, uh, there were for three from Ethiopia, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't remember the others. Uh, they might come back. The one from Kenya, Joseph Oguel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> we used to see each other, and then, you know, some, one day uh, so these Ghanaians came to our room to learn how to cook, uh, I don't know, eggs, and they taught us how to cook fufu. <laughs> and, you know, there was a, a very close camaraderie. And at some point we thought, you know, why don't we start an African Students Association? Well, that's what, what I thought I was, although I should, as a provisor, I had also started exploring my Indian roots, which I had never bothered to do. So we just would meet endless discussions, you know, about the charter. <laughs> Half of us didn't know what a charter was because we were all science students. And at some point it was founded, but then I think it was taken over by graduate students, one of whom was from Malawi. I remember that, I don't know his name. And it was taken over and I, then I just got lost. I don't know what we actually accomplished at that time. It was new and uh, sounded exciting and we met to formulate a charter and about that, that was about all. You know. But the friends remained. And, uh, I've never been able to contact any of my African friends. I've tried on the internet, but... Uh, but it was an exciting period. And in those days, the U.S. was a friendlier place. So, you know, I didn't, if someone said, where do you come from? I didn't get offended. Like people mm -hmm. do in, now in Toronto. You say, where do you come from? They say, what do you mean? I come from here. But in those days, if someone asked me where I come from, I said, I come from Tanzania. And they would say, oh, yeah, they want to know more about it. So, you know, it was, mm -hmm. uh, it was a wonderful time in those days in the U.S. Misty Radio is a production of MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives. You can listen to us on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time.